verses here. And, uh, you know, it can be, I suppose, uh, applicable to people who are wanting to come to Christ. But that wasn't what Paul was talking about here. He was talking to people who were already right with God. They were already saved. And he's talking in a past tense. And whatever God had done in their heart, he was looking at them and saying, this is what God has done. And he has done it by his grace. And he has done it through your faith. And um, it starts out with the first five words, and you hath he quickened. And if you need a title for this morning, that's what the title would be. And you hath he quickened. And so I'd just like you to imagine Paul standing in front of the Ephesian church, talking to them and telling them what has happened, talking to them about what has happened in their lives. So we're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then the first two words of verse 11. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And then verse 11, wherefore remember, and we will stop right there. I'd like you to further imagine not only is Paul standing in front of a group from Ephesus, but he's speaking in a room with one man or one woman. And talking to that one individual and looking them in the eye and saying, you, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Imagine even further that the time is now fast forwarded 2000 years. And now instead of Paul, it's a small gray haired woman looking into the casket of her dead husband. And as she looks at her husband in that casket her mind starts to go back through various memories that she has. And that's what she whispers to her husband. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And she's younger than he is. She's in her late 60s. He died in his early 70s. After he passed away, she would go on to remarry. But before she remarried, she had something she wanted to do. And that is right Memories, write a eulogy, if you please, about her husband. And this eulogy contains these first six verses that we read here. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I'd like to tell you the story about that woman and by extension by, about her husband and what God did in their lives. I've shared parts of this story before, but parts of it I haven't. I've never shared it here in this building that, that I can remember the, some of the parts that we're going to talk about. The, the name of the lady I'd like to talk about is Martha Schenk. And later it was Palmer. She was born around 1909. She was uh, born into a, a good, solid Mennonite home in the state of Virginia. And uh, they, as, as she grew older, they would do various outreaches. They would reach out to the community around them. And uh, she had a job back then. The phones weren't like they are today. You carry them around in your pocket there. They were nailed to walls and tables and so forth. And they only had one for the whole community. And so they had to have somebody there to take these messages and relay them to the rest of the people. Well, that was her job. She took a message one time talking about um, uh, the, the message came through. There was a man who was dying in the hospital. He wanted to talk to somebody about his soul. So she got a hold of she passed the message on to their bishop, George Brunk, George Brunk, Sr., and he eventually went and he went and visited this man, dying man, sick man in the hospital. He was a young man in his 20s, but uh, he was dying. He was sick. They thought he was dying anyway, but he led him to the Lord. His name was Ralph, Ralph Palmer. 
And uh, Ralph came to church one of the next Sundays after he became a little better. He was still weak from his sickness, but he uh, he came to he came to church and gave his testimony of salvation. Eventually, he became a member there at that Mennonite church. And not too long after, he must have asked her to marry him. And she must have said yes, because they got married when uh, they were 24 and 30, six years apart, I guess. And, you know, I don't know what all went through their mind. He, this, this young man was from the streets. He was he, he had a rough background. He had all kinds of sin issues before he was saved. But now God had done the work in his heart. And I don't know as they contemplated marriage, whether or not people would warn her, say, hey, Martha, I don't know if you should marry this guy. He's not from the same background that you are. He comes from a different culture. He's he's different. He's he's I don't know what kind of warnings she had. I can imagine, but I don't know. And uh, but whatever happened, she felt led to go ahead and get married to to uh, this man. She must have said yes, because they, they were married. Now, after they got married, Ralph wanted to he had a burden for people in his past, people who grew up on the streets, people who still have these same addiction issues and sin issues that he had. He wanted to go out and, and, and talk to them. He wanted to visit people in the hospital. He wanted to talk to people about the Lord. He wanted to put up gospel tracts. He put these boxes around his, the place where he would work and fill them with gospel tracts. That was what his interests were. His wife wanted to just fit in. Let's we want to we're, we're part of this community. I want you to learn to know my people. Let, you know, we have all these social functions. Can't we just relax a little bit and settle down? But Ralph was he, he was passionate about these people that were out there who used to be where who were, who were still where he used to be. And uh, he, he just couldn't relax and settle down. He wanted to share the gospel. He tried to get other people from their church to go with him. And they'd go, a few of them, half-heartedly, kind of. It wasn't really their passion. And it, it became discouraging to him to try to get others to see the need. We live in a dying world. We live in a sinful world. Can't you see how people need the gospel? And his, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to judge those people that were around him. But th there is a problem that does happen when we are following Christ, that we can cool off. Was that what was happening in their life? Were they becoming lukewarm? I don't know. Maybe God had simply called them to something else. Either way, it was discouraging to Ralph as he tried to get other people to join him in sharing the gospel. And as he got discouraged, he began to cool off spiritually. The, the bishop, George Brunk Sr., who had led him to the Lord, noticed that he was cooling off. And he gave him a warning. He said, Ralph, when we were in that hospital room and I led you to the Lord, you made a promise. You said that um, you said that if you spare my life, God, I'm going to serve you faithfully. That was a promise you made before God. He heard it. And he says, Ralph, if you go back on that promise, something worse is going to happen to you. And he gave that warning, but he didn't live to see the results of that warning because George Brunk died not long after that in the year 1938. The next year was the year 1939 when World War II began. And as people went off to war and as shipments of goods were up and going up and down these railroads, Ralph, who worked in the railroad, he suddenly found his workload like doubled from what it was before because all the young men weren't there. Plus, they had more stuff to ship. And so his work was taken over. He was already starting to cool off spiritually. And uh, he, he quit going to church. He, was, um, he got back into some of his old habits, tobacco and alcohol. He was uh, spending time with friends that were not a godly influence on him. He was, he was in the process of a word the Bible uses... Uh, uh, backsliding or backslider. One of those words is in the Bible at least. Maybe it's there several times. But that whole thing of backsliding has been on my mind lately. What does it mean to backslide? What are the causes of backsliding? What are the results of backsliding? We talked about this. We had the youth over at our place last night. We talked about this thing of backsliding. And, and what is it that causes it? What's the antidote to it? There's a few thoughts that came up and I'd be open to more. And, you know, if somebody has some in the testimony, time. but, you know, the 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 idea of we are designed as people to not simply be a reservoir of God's grace, but to be a channel. What flows in needs to flow out when we stop letting it flow out. We start to dry up or, or get get uh, to start to die like the Dead Sea has an in, inlet, but not an not an outlet. And uh, that's one of the issues. 
Another issue that came up in the discussion was, what about your own quiet time? The time you spend alone with God. The time reading His Word. If we don't guard that time, protect it, we will backslide. Another issue was prayer. You know, I think this is an issue that I have seen, I have felt, when our ministry time, whatever, whatever our ministry is, in Ralph's case, he was putting up track racks all over town. He was talking to people. Is it possible that his ministry life got ahead of his prayer life? That's another possibility, I think, that can happen. Uh, I'm not saying all of these happened to Ralph, but this whole issue of backsliding, what we're doing for the Lord is far ahead of our time praying, uh, praying to the Lord, the, 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 the time spending with the Lord. Is that possible? Is that a danger? Maybe there was the issue of unforgiveness. You know, that that's one of the most common things that that uh, happens to a person. Paul or, or uh, in Hebrews, it warns about whoever wrote Hebrews that a root of bitterness springing up could trouble you and many could be defiled by it. That is so common. As I talk to struggling people, that's one that they don't even recognize. Most of the time, they don't even recognize, especially if they're a Christian. They say, oh, I've forgiven everybody. Yes, but when you start hearing them voice grievances, you suddenly start to get this feeling that really still is unforgiveness. Um, maybe it was this thing of a clear conscience. Let me just put that word up on the board so you don't forget it. But if you have this precious gift this morning, if you have the precious gift of a clear conscience, guard that with your life. That is a gift that you have. It is precious. And if you lose it, get it back right away. Don't waste any of your life walking around with an unclear conscience. Do whatever it takes to get it back. Pay the price, whatever it is, to get back that clear conscience and then guard it. Was there small things in Ralph's life that violated his conscience? And he tried to live with the unclear conscience. And eventually it just kept taking him down. I think there's various things. Another thing we talked about last night was maybe the beginning of all backsliding. At least if you look at Romans 1, it seems to be the beginning of all backsliding was this thing of Neither were thankful. Just that tiny little phrase in there. They, go, they went through life. Maybe they weren't thankful for the salvation that they had received. Maybe they weren't thankful for the Bible that God's given us, the, the Word of God, Jesus, the sacrifice that was made. Maybe they weren't thankful for the people around them. They started finding, maybe that was what Ralph was. Instead of being thankful for these church members that weren't quite at the same place he was, maybe he started to become unthankful. And uh, critical. I, I don't know. I don't know what all went on. Um, and, 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 you know, that's that's also a result of pride. Humility produces thankfulness. Pride produces <coughs> unthankfulness. And, and this this thing of of uh, of backsliding, it's, you know, as I think of us as a church, we've gone through a lot in the last I don't know, 15 years, whatever we've been here. I begin close to 20 by now. But we've seen many people come. Many people that have really had a fire for God in, at one point. Many people who they spent time on the streets preaching. And yet today they're far from God by all fruit that we can observe. Or maybe they had a very godly family at one point and today they're far from God. And what is the reason for this backsliding? And, and so, so again, are we being diligent? Do, are we guarding the clear conscience? Are we guarding our quiet time, our prayer time? Are we guarding our hearts against unforgiveness and other sins of lust or pride or rebellion or anger? Are we sharing our faith with others? I think these are good things to be to be thinking about. Meanwhile, what about Martha? Martha, she's now a young married woman. She's been married about five years by now, five, six years, something like that. Now her husband is. A long ways from God. He's backslidden. She's still faithful. She wants to be faithful, even though, um, you know, maybe there was still a work in her that God wanted to do. Maybe she didn't have the same passion her husband used to have. But now he's backslidden. She still wants to walk on with God. What is she? What is she? Uh, what is she going to do right now? I'd like to ask another question. Do you know what it's like to live with a cloud 
hanging over your life. You know what a cloud is. There's all kinds of clouds that can hang over our life. There's maybe financial troubles. Maybe our, our, our finances just aren't going the way they're supposed to. Our debts are increasing and our assets are going down. We're not sure we'll be able to pay our bills. And, and this, this is a cloud hanging over us. I'm just not sure how this is going to turn out. And I try to go on with life. And, and you come to church and you go to social events and you try to put a smile on your face. And yet you have this cloud of financial trouble hanging over your life. Maybe it's trouble at work. I'm just not sure what I'm going to do with this problem I'm facing at my work. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's other struggles, conflict in the home, church struggles. Uh, there, there's all kinds of things like that that can be a cloud that hangs over our life. Maybe it's a health issue. I remember a, a couple that we just met this past year in June when we were back east that had a cloud hanging over their life. Uh, Clayton Shank and his wife, Mary Lois, they, they started a year ago in the year uh, 2000 and, um, 2019. And as far as they knew, everything was good health-wise. What they didn't know was that he had cancer. I think they found out in February that he had cancer. And by June, uh, and, and I think by that time, it was already stage four cancer. And they were trying different treatments and had different ideas, maybe about how to get victory or get, uh, get a cure for this cancer. In June, they bravely came to the Billboard conference because he, uh, he had just recently joined the Billboard team answering phone calls. And here they were just with a high degree of uncertainty. What's going to happen uh, with with this cancer that I have there. He had this walker. He was walking around. But, you know, I, I don't know of all the people that were there at that conference. If there was anybody more joyful and happy than Clayton Shank and his wife, they were walking around with making jokes and making people smile and cheering people up and looking at other people. And just that, that was just the way he was, even with this cancer, with this cloud hanging over his head. And, you know, his faith, he was he was praising God, whatever's going to happen. Uh, he was OK with it. But they're trusting God for a miracle. And uh, but if not, it's it's all right. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to keep on praising God. After that, we, he went back home. The rest of us went back home. We keep getting emails from him. But those emails weren't talking about his problems, cancer, pain. No, no the emails were writing poems for the billboard team to cheer them up and encourage them as they answer some of these difficult calls. And uh, he, he himself was even taking calls as much as he could in between the, the struggles and uh, right up on into November. We even have a recording of his last call. And it was a very interesting call of his of the, uh, you know, his encouraging the man on the other end. That was in November. And uh, but you say, well, with that kind of faith, God must have healed him. Right. Well, actually, no, not physically. Anyway, Ma uh, Christmas Day. Uh, the 25th of December, early in the morning, he passed away. The year started out. They didn't know he had cancer. The year ended. He was gone. And so there they are, were with this cloud hanging over their lives, but joy in their hearts. And now his widow is going on. Brand new year. Didn't expect this year to turn out this way. But now she's alone. She's got a cloud, a cloud of grief hanging over her head. And she's got to go to church on Sunday and face family and friends and fellowship meals. Now she's got this cloud hanging over her head. There's lots of different clouds that can face us. But one of the most difficult clouds is when you have a loved one who is not walking with the Lord. And that's the cloud that's been hanging over us as a family for the last few years with our daughter. And uh, some of you know what that feels like. And... That's the cloud that was hanging over Martha's head as she thought about her husband who was out in the world, far from God. But, you know, she still had a work to do. They had a little girl to raise. They still had people to uh, minister to. And there were new things, ministries that God was opening up, ministry of prayer. It seems that she was a praying woman before that, but she became more of a praying woman. And uh, she would try to talk to her husband, you know, two years would go by, three years went by, four years, and he was still a long ways from God. She tried to talk to him and encourage him to come back to the Lord. But he would just he'd brush her off and say, no, I can't, uh, you, you know, take care of yourself. Finally, she just knelt before God and said, God, you have to talk to him because I can't. And, you know, sometimes that's what God's waiting on. He just wants us to say, I can't do it and turn it over to him to let him do that.
And that's what, and it was, you know, God did work. He would send other people, even their little girl, you know, as she talked to her daddy. And, and he, you could tell he was touched by her pleas to him, her songs to him. There's a young man from church that went and visited him, even at his place of work, and talked to him just real briefly. And he was touched by that. So his heart was seemed to be still have some softness in it. But the years kept going by, you know, five years, six years. Eventually, World War II was over, 1946. And uh, work started to slow down a little bit. He told his wife, he said, okay, you've been bugging me to go to church with you. Okay, I'll go if this particular branch of my work gets shut down because that's what I got to work so much overtime. If, if that gets shut down, I, I promise you I'll come to church with you. And a few weeks later, she saw in the newspaper it had been shut down. That was on a Wednesday. She, and on Saturday, she told him, hey, I saw that that was shut down and you promised to go to church with me. Well, Ralph wasn't ready to keep his promise. He looked at his wife and said, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I just, uh, I just can't. Uh, I, I just can't go to church with you. And she was devastated. They went to bed that night, Saturday night. Well, at 2.30 in the morning, all of a sudden she wakes up and the bed is, her, that, his side of the bed is empty. And she looks around, where is he? And he's calling out, help me, help me. He's trying to walk and he can't. He can't pick up his feet. He's just hit with some kind of a, uh, a disease. And he, he could hardly breathe. And... Uh, he was crying out for help and asked for her to pray for him. And she did. But this was a sickness that struck him down as they went to the hospital. He realized that, you know, when he told God, I can't go to church, that God was making it that he really couldn't. And uh, it was a punishment from God. He, he went back on his promise. Well, as he sensed God's chastening hand on him. He began to confess his sins and repent. He told his wife, I got I got uh, I want to I want to get right with God. There's I have some cigarettes up in my room, you know, upstairs. Go get them and burn them. And so she did. He had things to make right with his family, make right with his church. He went to work after he got a little bit better. And he told his, his co-workers that he had become a Christian. They laughed at him, said, no, you know, get, it'll be two weeks and you'll be back to doing the same thing. But this time he said, no, it's for real. And. As, as time went on, he, he, you know, a week or two later, after he had a chance to make things right with his wife, with his family, with his church, with his co-workers, it, it, he, he was only well enough for a short period of time, and then he started to get sick again. And it was like God was chasing him, chastening him even deeper. And everyone thought he was going to die. They went to the doctor, the, do the hospital, the doctor. They looked at him and says, this guy's in bad shape. He's not going to survive. But... Martha started praying to God. What are you going to do, God? And God said to Ralph, Martha this. He said, Ralph is being chastened, but if you request it, his life will be spared. And so she has this dilemma. What do I pray? Should I pray for his life to be spared? After all, he's right with God now. And he said, I don't want to go back into sin. I'd rather die than go back into sin. So she prayed a conditional prayer. She said, God, well, if you know that he'll be faithful, then yes, please save his life. And the answer came back, well, all right, I'm going to save his life as long as you stay with him. And I have work for him to do. But you've got to stay with him and help him. And that just burned in her mind. I have to stay with him. Even though it's hospital room, there's no bed for her. She's got a chair to sleep in that wasn't very comfortable. But she stayed with him for the next uh, three or four weeks as he just hung there between life and death. All the doctors thought he was going to die. He was having... Uh, uh, like delusions. He would have these dreams. He would be crying out. He'd have visions of people who had died unsaved and he would, he would scream that it was his fault. Later, he didn't remember these things, but his wife would talk to him. She says, well, God told me that if, if you, she says, Ralph, and he, he could communicate even though he was in this, you know, this uh, very sick state. Do you know of anybody else who's still alive that is not that are not saved? She says, oh, yeah, I got a lot of people like that. Well, God has told me that he wants to use you to work among city people. And he says, well, OK, even though he felt like dying, he finally agreed to to stay living. And um, as as time went on, eventually the doctors, you know, he kept getting lower and lower and they take these blood tests. They say this is so sad. We've never seen anybody this sick before. He should be dead by now. And uh, there's no hope he's ever going to recover. But she had had that promise from God. He's going to recover. And sure enough, he did. When he did recover, when he finally felt like he, he, his testimony was, God gave me a whipping I never forget. He says, this was God's chastening, but 
when he finally got got out of that hospital bed, he was still weak. He didn't know. Can I, what can I do for God now? One of the one of the preachers, which is actually George Brunk Jr., asked him a question. Do you think you could stand on a street corner and hand out gospel tracts? And he says, Well, I think I could probably do that. Um, and uh, he they keep driving around. He still had his job in the railroad. And they'd drive through towns and he'd see these people and he was so burdened. But that question, do you think you could just hand out gospel tracts? Yeah, he, he finally decided, I, I got to do something. That burden for the loss was still burning in his heart. He went and bought a couple thousand tracts, gospel tracts. And he took them downtown, took a, took a box of 1,000 of them. And he was out there in the streets and his wife was sitting in the car waiting for him. And a little while he came back, she said, what's the matter? Won't people take them? She said, he says, of course, yes, they took them. They, he says, I gave out that whole box. Give me some more. And so they took another box out there. And in, in, about, in an hour, it was like a thousand tracks. And that's, that's quite a few. Having passed out some tracks, I know that to do a thousand in an hour, I, I don't know. I, that, that's really doing it quick, I guess. But that was only the beginning of a nationwide ministry. He started in, in their local areas, you know, the towns within driving distance and do it kind of in between work. He would he would work and do about he'd still work in a full time job. So he would take about 15 hours a week passing out these tracks. Um, but eventually they felt called to go to other states. And so they, they got in their car and drove to other states, handing out tracks in the towns. And that became began a ministry that lasted like 20 years this happened in his 40s, I think, so up into his late 60s, uh, going from city to city all over the United States. And some of the amounts of gospel tracts are just, to me, mind boggling. It's hard to understand how he could do that. But he kept record. You know, here I passed out 7,000 in one day, 8,000 in a day. One of his records was Portland, Oregon, 10,000 in one day of, of gospel tracts. And that's one at a time, hand to hand. It's like, you know, you can calculate that out, how many that is. You know, every how many every second you'd have to or every couple of seconds, you'd have to pass them out, um, have to pass out another uh, track. And so that's that's what they did just over and over again through uh, through most of the rest of their life. Somebody estimated that in his lifetime, from that day till the end of his life, they passed out somewhere around 10 million gospel tracks, which at that point, the United States had about 20, uh, 200 million people. That's that's five percent of the population. The people that got a gospel track. Of course, some may have got two, but anyway, that's it's still that's a lot of tracks that he passed out during that time. And his wife was beside him. She was going along. The book says the book that she wrote later says a sower went forth. But in the introduction, it says, well, actually, it was two sowers that went forth. It was a man and his wife and she would drive and she would cook and clean and she would pray and she'd help prepare tracks and pray some more. And uh, so that, that's uh, that was her life. This time she wasn't dragging her feet. This time she was with him the whole way as they went. They also started seeing other opportunities. He looked for these opportunities. He saw these signs up and down the road. He said, well, if the people can advertise potato chips and automobiles, why couldn't they advertise the gospel? And so he started building gospel signs. That was reading this story years ago is when we started uh, making signs as well after getting the inspiration from this book. They would uh, and, and eventually, they, you know, people from the church came and helped them. They'd be sending these these gospel signs out all over the country. And again, the numbers of how many signs they made to me are mind boggling, knowing how much work it takes to make one sign. But somebody again estimated they did somewhere around 200,000 gospel signs uh, in their in their life. And, um, you know, you know, people would read them and people would ask the question, is this really doing anything? Does it really work? Well, there was one of his friends. Uh, well, actually, two of his friends, a couple, Paul and Irma, who lived there in Virginia. They'd help make some of these signs, but they went on a mission trip. They were over, spent some time over in the country of Ethiopia. And while they were in Ethiopia, you know, anytime you meet somebody from the United States, it's kind of special. So they were there and they met this college student. Uh, actually, she was maybe she was by that time uh, a nurse over there. Her name was Susan. And Susan Ask Paul and Irma, where are you from? Well, I'm from, we're from the states like you are. Okay, what state? Well, we're from Virginia. She says, okay, wow, I really, I have some special memories of Virginia. She says, you see, Virginia was where I got saved. She says, I was in college in Virginia, and all my people, the people around me were ungodly. I'd grown up in a Christian home, but I wasn't godly either. And uh, one day, one night, we went out to town. 
And we always needed somebody to drive home because we didn't want anybody to be driving drunk. So they designate one person. You don't drink tonight. The rest of us are going to drink and have a good time. And then, the, you know, but you, you know, stay sober so you can drive home. And next week we'll switch and you can get drunk and the rest can be sober or somebody else can be sober. And uh, so she was the designated driver this night, this this evening. And people, as as they drove away from the town, the bar, wherever they were, driving back to their dorms, people around her were making their jokes and talking their filthy talk. And and here they are driving through the dark night in Virginia. And all of a sudden, right there is a sign right in the in their path as they go around a curve. Prepare to meet thy God. And this sign, she says, just kept going through my mind. I kept thinking about that. What does that mean? She says, I knew from the actions of people behind me, they weren't prepared to meet God. And I knew from past experience, if I had been like them, I would be doing the same thing. It was only because I was a designated driver that I wasn't doing what they were doing. But this kept going through her mind. Went back to the dorm. Prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. Until finally, she said, I gave my heart to the Lord. I repented. And this was her testimony. To Paul and Irma and Paul and Irma, they had they said, well, you know, we think we might know where that sign came from. In fact, we think we might have helped make that sign. And this was, of course, many years after after the sign had been made. This is still bearing the fruit of it as as, as Ralph witnessed the power of gospel tracks and the power of gospel signs. And then, you know, as they're driving around, it's getting older, getting weaker. I think it was long before that he saw another opportunity to um Share the gospel. And that was, you know, just the idea of, as he drives this camper that they had bought around through the towns, the thousands of people who would see their camper. He said, well, you know, why not put gospel signs on that? So that's where he got that idea. Put signs on that and, uh, you know, warning them about judgment and hell. Sinners shall be turned into hell. Uh, all nations that don't for, that, that forget God. And uh, again, people would ask the question. I this is maybe one I've shared before, but just a, you know, just a little testimony. The questions people would ask, is it really do anything? Here's just a here's just a testimony. One day as we sat at a lunch counter, a middle aged man whom we have known since his youth came up to us. I want to tell you, Ralph, how much I appreciate those signs you have on your car and camper. You know, I've been a church member for many years, but I was not really right with God. Whenever I saw those messages about judgment and hell, I would wince. They hit me pretty hard. You've touched me many a time, Ralph, when you didn't even know I was anywhere around. Well, about six months ago, I made a change, a definite commitment to God, and I really got right with him. I saw your camper out there, so I came to tell you. Again, does it have an impact? Does it, have, does it, does it make any difference? These testimonies confirm that it does. There was uh, another time they were parked or they were at a, at a street light. And here comes a man carrying a Bible across the street. And he tells them his testimony. He says, I used to be way out there in sin. I was I'd, I'd become a Christian at one point, but I backslid. But all of a sudden I saw your camper with the sinner shall be turned into hell. And it made me mad. And I tried to get away from it. I tried to avoid it. But he'd be driving through town peacefully again the next week. And here it was again, just right in front of his face. And he just kept getting, kept getting reminded until he finally gave his heart to the Lord. And he says, I've been looking for you guys. I've been waiting to see. Where can I tell you that this had this impact? He says, finally, I caught you here, stopped, and I just want you to know is it, uh, it, that it really did have an impact. We also get questions. I don't know how much uh, this testimony in this book inspired David Troyer to start putting up gospel signs through CAM all over the United States. I think it probably had something to do with it. Uh, but we get questions on the billboards. Does it really have an impact? Is it really working? Is it successful? Well, to define success, you need to know what your goal is. And, you know, if I was to say, well, the goal is we want to have X number of converts in, you know, every year that we can deliberately, we can directly trace back to one of those billboards. It'd be a little bit hard to do that, I would admit, because we certainly want to win souls. That's why we do what we do. But there's another thing that we really need to do as well. And that is to warn those winning souls is important, but warning people is also important. Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 33, 79, so thou, so thou, O son of man, man, I've set thee a watchman into the house of Israel, therefore thou shalt hear thy word, the word at, thy mouth, at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, 
That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. So when I was, that's our responsibility to warn the wicked. So when I was talking to this billboard caller, he asked me, is it really successful? I told him it is amazingly successful because we are warning people by the millions every day about the judgment that's coming. And I don't know how many of them are getting saved. There's certainly some we prayed with people already. I don't know how what happened to them after that. But no question that there are millions and millions of people getting a clear warning about the judgment that's coming. John the Baptist, he warned Herod about his marriage. It's not lawful for you to have her. Noah warned the people of his generation about the judgment that was coming. And he didn't get many converts. In fact, he knew ahead of time he wasn't going to get many converts because God told him when you get in that boat, it's going to be you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. There's eight people. And so he wasn't expecting, it doesn't appear, to get a lot of uh, people won to salvation. But he still had a responsibility to warn them. Seems like God has a desire that sinners come to repent. He doesn't want people to repent to, to perish. But if they are going to perish, if they are going to end up in hell, make sure they have a clear warning. And that is our, us as Christians. That's our responsibility. And so let me just read a little bit of Ralph's testimony here. As Ralph is talking about what he did, the way he lived his life. He wrote this personal testimony called Scattering Precious Seed. Ralph says, I grew up in cities, living in sin, drinking, fighting, gambling. I know the ropes in the sin game. Six of my former companions in sin met untimely deaths years ago. After serving the devil for years, I realized that the only wages such a life brings are death, sorrow, and death. I took the gospel remedy of repentance, faith, and obedience. When I looked to Jesus Christ in faith, he saved me. The only thing that was able to release me from my bondage of evil was presented to me through a tract and visitation workers from the Mennonite church. The sheriff could not take the whiskey bottle from my lips. My mother could not get me to stop. But when Jesus came into my heart, I was through with whiskey, cigarettes and a multitude of other sins. Now I loathe my former way of life. And I have a great concern for others who are still held in the devil's clutches. The sight of thousands of unsaved people walking the streets dissatisfied and unhappy made me stop and think. I knew how they felt. I had been one of them. They needed the gospel, and I felt responsible to give it to them. I thought of the command of Jesus in Mark 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Here was a part of the world. Here were multitudes of lost souls. But how could I reach so many people? To speak personally with each one of them would be impossible. The great majority I knew would not come to church to hear a message. Suddenly, the answer came to me. I would try to give them the message in printed form. With several, with a supply of several thousand gospel tracts, I parked my car down on a downtown street and began offering the attractive little leaflets to the shopping crowds. I was surprised at how readily they accepted them. While a few refused them and some threw them away, the great majority received and kept them. Many read the messages as they walked down the street. In a little over an hour, I had given out 1,000 tracts. Since that small beginning, my track work has greatly expanded. During the past 20-odd years, I've given out more than 10 million tracks weighing over 20 tons. This number of tracks laid end to end would make a line nearly 800 miles long or more than one fourth the distance across the United States. The great majority of these I passed out personally, hand to hand, on the streets of the larger cities and towns of the United States and Canada. Some of them, little 24 page booklets containing Bible verses on the plan of salvation, living the Christian life, I gave to schools for distribution. To the pupils. And then he talks about some of the longer trips. The one, the longest one that he took was like 16,000 miles long, covered 28 different states, and he passed out 200,000 tracts on that one trip. And that was while also stopping in the evenings at churches and giving a talk uh, on, on the, you know, what he was doing. And so he talked in 125 different churches uh, in the evenings while he's passing out these tracts. That was, that was his longest trip, but he took many others as well. And he talks about some of his record days, including Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, 10,000 in a day. 
My object in writing this message is to encourage others to engage in this work. It needs to be done. It can be done. It has been done. I know because I did it. I tell these things not to boast of what I've done, but to help others see the need and the responsibility for fulfilling that need. As far as I know, there's no more effective way to reach the masses of people in our large cities than by the distribution of tracts. Responding to this call may involve the sacrifice of material things and physical comforts. I gave up a well-paying railroad job to do this work. Some of my friends and relatives said I was foolish, but I want to say that the rewards of knowing and obeying the command of Jesus far exceed the sacrifices. I thank the Lord for many people throughout the church who've been concerned enough for the salvation of lost souls that they're willing to give money to keep the work going. Through the years, the track work grew to the extent that I could not have kept it going without the prayers and financial support of such people. While I am no longer able to go as far or do as much as in earlier years, I'm still engaged in distributing tracks as the Lord gives me strength. My wife and I have a new pickup camper which provides living quarters while we're away from home. On the four sides of the camper are painted large attractive letters, quotations from God's word, so that as we travel the highways and streets, people are reading the signs, reading the warnings and invitations from God. And then he asks them to pray for him. He says, as I go scattering the precious seed of the word, I find much evidence is still true that some seed falls on hard ground, some on rocky and thorny places, and some on the good soil of honest hearts where it grows and brings forth fruit. People take the tracks better now than in all the 25 years of my track work. Many express to me their distress over conditions in the world. They're afraid of what's going to happen. We have the message they need. I urge every child of God to do what you can to give the message of salvation to the great multitudes in our cities. Then he talks about using good tracks. He's got some recommendations about where, where to get good tracks. And then he says, I am 100% in favor of sending missionaries to foreign lands and giving our means to support them in their work of telling the gospel message to people in all the world. But let us who stay here not settle down and think we can, we've thereby done our duty. Here we are surrounded by millions of people who don't have a clear knowledge of the way to salvation. He says there are over 200 million people in the U.S. We hear people say, here's the Bible, here's the church. If they want it, let them come and get it. But that's not what Jesus said. He told us to go and give them the message. How are we going to face him in the judgment if we fail to carry out his instructions? The signs of the world seem to indicate the coming of the Lord is near at hand. May God shake up and wake up the church. May we who know the Lord see the need and hear the call to spread the gospel while we can. Ours is the responsibility for the generation in which we live. To the Christian church comes the command to give the gospel to every creature. By the grace of God, let us do all within our power to carry it out. As I went through this story of Martha Shank Palmer and her husband, Ralph, I had to ask this question. There's a number of different characters in this story. And I have to ask, who am I? Who are you? And I'd like you to ask that question. Who are you of the various people that we could list? First of all, we have Ralph in his unconverted state. He was dead in trespasses and sins. Is that you today? If so, the gospel message is repent and believe the gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who believeth not shall be damned. The invitation is there. Come to Christ if you are currently where Ralph used to be, dead in his trespasses and sins. Secondly, we have Ralph in his converted state. And he has now been forgiven of his sins. And he is now seeking to live for God, walk in obedience. And so my question is, if that is you, do you still have your first love? Are you still uh, being a channel of God's love and power? Are you guarding this thing right here, the clear conscience? Are you treasuring that? Like your most prized possession. I dare not lose my clear conscience. Are you treasuring your time alone with God? And keep making that priority. Your time of prayer and so forth. The third group of people we have. Are the fellow church members of Ralph. The people that were around him. He was excited about the gospel and his newfound faith. They didn't seem quite as excited. Is that you? You've been saved for how many years? You're, 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 you've been a Christian for a while. It's just kind of, it's not as exciting as it used to be. And when somebody else comes along that is excited about it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's fine, but I got other things to do. Is that where you are? That you've, you've cooled off? You're maybe lukewarm would be an adjective that would describe you. Not really concerned about the lost. Are you, and if so, are you a discouragement to others because of your lack of passion for the gospel? So the fourth group of people would be those who are where Ralph was after that period of time. He's backslidden state. Is that you? You at one point were walking with God, but today you're not. 
There's hidden sin in your life. You have backslidden. Maybe people know it. Maybe people don't know it. But you're backslidden. You're not right with God any longer. And if that is where you are, are you open to God speaking to you? The fifth group of people would be Martha as her husband is in his backslidden state. And she has this cloud hanging over her head. Is that you this morning? You have a cloud hanging over your life. There's a grief that just won't go away. You're, you're, you're just, maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a, uh, a lost family member. Uh, what are you doing with this cloud that hangs over your life? Are you willing to be used by God even with that cloud hanging over you? Is it maybe even possible that you can be more useful to God? Because of the grief that you are facing, like Clayton Shank and his cancer, like many others who have been through pain or are still going through pain. Are you willing to become a prayer warrior to give yourself to prayer more than ever before and let that cloud be a motivation to prayer? I remember my grandma. She passed away. Um, tw- actually, it was 20 years ago, just a couple of days ago, because it was the evening of December 31. 1999, she had an ungodly husband, and I think she prayed for his salvation. And at least in her lifetime, he never did get saved, but she kept on praying. And today, as you look at her descendants, many of them, uh, if not if not the, if the vast majority, are, are serving the Lord in spite of the fact that they had an ungodly grandpa and father. And uh, so her prayers were not in vain. She kept on praying. And uh, December 31... 1999, just a few hours before the century turned, uh, she passed away. She had been in a she had been uh, she had Alzheimer's. She had lost her mind months and months before that, and she couldn't respond. Her mouth was hanging out. She couldn't. Even, she didn't have the muscle power to close her mouth. But right before she passed away, all of a sudden her face just burst into this big smile, and she hadn't smiled for a long time. Uh, couldn't talk, nothing, but big smile. And then it faded. And, and my mom was there and her caretakers were there and they saw it and they were just gasping. Wow, this is something. And then the, the, that smile went away. But another one came, second one. And then that faded away. And then the third one. And then finally the fourth one. And after the fourth one, she stopped breathing. And that was, like I say, 530 in the evening. We were, we heard she was pretty low. We were on our way, but we didn't get to see it. We were just, if we'd have been 30 minutes earlier, we would have, I would have been able to witness that myself. But there was enough witnesses there that there's no question that it really happened. But she lived most of her life with a cloud hanging over her life, a cloud of an ungodly husband, maybe the cloud of an unfortunate marriage. She made, maybe, maybe, I suppose people said she made a mistake, and I think maybe she would have admitted herself, I made a mistake when I married this, this man. But the cloud that was hanging over her life was a motivation to, to pray for people around her, including her own descendants. The sixth group of people is Ralph. Once he's finally under conviction and the hand of God has settled upon him and in this deep sickness and the pain, and he realizes, I have sinned against my creator. And now his chastening is upon me. What am I going to do now? He had a, still had a choice. You know, the most two, two most powerful words in uh, the, the Christian life is humble yourself. I've said that before here. I'll say it again. Wherever you are, whether things are going good, whether they're going bad, humble yourself. If I was to write two more words on the board, that's what it would be. I would write the words humble yourself up there. Humble yourself under the hand of God. If you want God to be on your side, you want God to be with you rather than against you. See, God resists the proud. You become God's enemy with pride. But when you humble yourself, God gives grace. Ralph chose to humble himself when the chastening hand of God came upon him. And the seventh group of people would be Ralph once he has recovered, once he has repented and come back to God and now he is a Christian and now he is on the way to heaven and now he is walking in victory once again. And my question is, like Ralph, do you have a burden for the lost? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God or are just are you just enjoying your newfound freedom in Christ, the salvation that God has given you? So, again, which group of people are you and are how are you responding? Again, those seven groups, Ralph, when he's unconverted. Ralph, when he's converted, that first love, the church members around Ralph, 
Ralph in a backslidden state. Is that you? Martha, the believing wife, now a grieving wife with a cloud hanging over her life. Is that where you are? Ralph under conviction. He's got to choose. Am I going to submit myself to God? And finally, Ralph recommitted, walking in victory, saved once again. What am I going to do with my life? I'd like to read Martha's testimony. Just a, a few words of her, of her writing just in closing here. She says this. She says, one of my reasons for writing this account of Ralph's life and work is, is in the hope that many may yet, through this testimony, find the same Savior that he loved and served. Many times I heard Ralph give a witness concerning his life, telling the experiences he had before conversion as well as after. These things he gave not only orally but in printed form as well. The latter distributed by him by him, by the thousands in tract form. I can think of no better summary of his life as he told it than as and as I knew him than this passage from God's word. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Let's bow for prayer. After this, I'll give the time to Glenn. And maybe if others have something they want to say about, uh, um, you know, there's a time for testimony about this whole thing of backsliding. Maybe your own testimony. You know, that's powerful. If somebody has a testimony yourself of how God is getting a hold of you, has gotten a hold of you, has spoken to you about some area of backsliding. You know, I think it'd be I think it'd be valuable. So think about that. But let's pray. I'll turn the time to back over to Glenn. Lord, we come to you in Jesus name. And we pray that you would be with us this morning. You would speak to us. And I thank you, God, for this testimony of Martha Schenk, later Palmer, and Ralph Palmer, uh, a man who you redeemed, you quickened, Lord, and showed mercy to him, not only once, not only twice, but many times. But you did save him, even in his backslidden state, and then used him to build your kingdom. And I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would inspire us to be your people, Lord, as your people, as we think of the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. And now here's one more that by the fruit that we can see was a faithful servant of yours later in his life. Lord, I pray that you would just move on us by your spirit. You would motivate us to be active in your kingdom wherever you've called us to, Lord. Maybe it's something similar to Ralph. Maybe it's different, but still it's your calling. Help us to know what that calling is and to fulfill your calling on us. Just be with every person that came here this morning, whatever effort they had to make to be here, bless them for that. And guide us as we go home. Just may your hand be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.